The letter of 2 Timothy, by way of background, is written by the Apostle Paul. And he writes it realizing that he is soon going to be dead. He writes it to his son in the faith, realizing that he is soon going to be executed for his faith. And so when you read this letter in particular, you have to read it with that in mind. And you have to understand then the passion and intensity and conviction he writes with on this particular occasion. So as we read this passage today, I want us to read this passage as if we were indeed Timothy. I want us to read this passage in this letter as if it was addressed to each of us, because in fact, it actually is addressed to each of us. And I want us to read this passage as if God were addressing each of us, because in all reality, sovereign grace, he is. God addresses us from his word. And so let's read together from verse 3 through to the end of verse 15 of what Paul has to say to Timothy. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Take note then of what he says next. Paul realizes his days are coming to an end. So he communicates the following to Timothy. Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, follow it and guard it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you encounter us in song. As we sing, we sense your nearness, we sense your presence. You tell us in Scripture that where we draw near to you, you will draw near to us, and we experience your active presence. Lord, I thank you that that active presence is present in the preached word as well. The Holy Spirit makes things alive in our heart. It, it opens our eyes. You, by your grace, 
Encourage and refresh us from within and our ears start to sing of what we're hearing. Lord, would that happen to each and every one of us in the room today? As we learn from Paul and as we sit like Timothy under Paul. Lord, did you open our eyes to behold what you're saying here? In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, church life, when you plant a church or when you set up a church, the reality is there are so many important things that, that need to be a part of church life. And so having a passion for the local church, helping people understand that the local church is where it's at. Arthur Wallace, a theologian, once said, you know what, find out what God is doing in your generation and then give your life to it. You know what he's doing in this generation? He's building the local church, just like he was doing in the one before and the one before and the one before that. Having a passion for the local church, the bride, is so important. So is sanctification and the pursuit of holiness. We're called to pursue holiness in our lives and to clothe ourselves with Christ and to become more and more like him through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Worship and singing, prayer and Bible reading, they're all important things to be built into our lives. Pursuing the spiritual gifts, eagerly desiring what the Lord has for us so that we can each play our part and the body builds itself up in love. Fellowship, doing life together, all the one another's of scripture which just go on and on and on. Bear with one another, forgive one another, be devoted to one another, confess your sins to one another. They're all important qualities in Scripture. And yet it's here in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul points Timothy, and indeed then us, to that which I believe is of first importance. That which is of primacy. That which really is the main thing. And what you realize the main thing is very quickly, particularly in verses 13 and 14, is the main thing is the gospel. It's Christ and him crucified. That's the main thing that every church and any church should build itself around. See, without question, Paul was seriously passionate about the gospel throughout his converted life and ministry, wasn't he? It's what he was about. That's what he talked about all the time. That's what he got passionate about. Without doubt and unarguably, the cross was the centerpiece of Paul's theology throughout his writings and works. And as such then, the cross, Christ and him crucified, was the predominant theme. And so if you read the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and then you read all the way through to 2 Timothy, you will find there is one nail that Paul keeps banging and banging and banging, and it's Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel. And so it should not surprise us then to discover that as Paul pens this final letter then to 2 Timothy, when he pens this letter to his child in the faith, it should not surprise us then that he wants Timothy to know about the main thing. Timothy, there are many important things. There are many important things that you need to build into the local church. But Timothy, there's a main thing. Timothy, there are many important things, and they are all derived from something else. There is a main thing. There are important things, and Timothy, there is a main thing. And Timothy, I am soon going to die. My life, Timothy, is coming to an end, and I have trained you for this day. So, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that, I, that you have heard from me. Timothy, follow the gospel. Christ and him crucified, follow it. And Timothy, guard it. 
The good deposit that I have passed on to you, the good deposit that I've entrusted to your care is the gospel. And so, Timothy, I want you to follow it and I want you to guard it. I want you to treasure it. I want you to grasp it. I don't want you to fumble it. Timothy, the main thing is the gospel. And so I want you to follow it in your ministry and I want you to guard it in your ministry. You know, Sovereign Grace, for us as a local church then, seeking to learn from the Apostle Paul, we unapologetically are building around the glorious truth of the gospel, aren't we? We're seeking to be a gospel-centered church. When you remember back to your starting point early days, week one, I informed you that our mission, listen, our mission at Sovereign Grace Church is to build together a community of believers who are what? Who are passionate about knowing applying and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. Learning from the Apostle Paul, learning what he's asking Timothy to do, learning from his example. We want to emulate his example, ensure that we too are following the pattern of the gospel, that we too are guarding the gospel, that we too are building around the gospel. But my question for you today is simply this. Why gospel-centered? Why not the love of the Father-centered? Or worship-centered? Or prayer-centered? Or Bible-centered? Why is the Apostle Paul so passionate about the gospel being the center? Why is Sovereign Grace Church so passionate about ensuring the gospel is central? Why? Well, that's my message today. Why gospel-centered? Why are we so passionate about building around the gospel? And folks, I want to give this message so that we may be refreshed, so that we may be encouraged, and so that by God's grace we may be refocused. Because we all forget, don't we? We all move on. And we even tell our friends, what type of church are you? Oh, we're gospel-centered. All right, why? Well, because that's what I learned on week one at starting point. You know, that will never encourage us. That will never refresh us. That will, need, that will never focus us. We need to be theologically driven as a church. And so we need to understand theologically why we're gospel-centered. And so I've got four points this morning as to why we're gospel-centered, that we may be refreshed and encouraged and refocused. Here's number one then. It's coming at you. Number one, the first reason why we are gospel-centered is because, number one, the gospel unites. The gospel brings us together. It's the gospel that helps us to stand together as a local church. There's no surprise then that Paul champions unity in all of his letters. And I was surprised by the depth of this, this exhortation in all of his letters. I was reading them this week and time and time again you hear the words one and unity to Paul. It is so important as he seeks to care for his churches. Let me illustrate it for you. In the book of Romans he tells them, he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement... Give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So that, (laughs) there is a so that, so that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to have a spirit of unity so that they may walk with one heart and one mouth. To the Ephesians, he says likewise. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Listen, make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. His first exhortation, having spent three chapters around the gospel, is, listen, make every effort. Well, make every effort to do what? To keep the unity. To stand together as a church. To stand together as one. To the Philippians. I love it. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Oh, I meant to that. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. What do you want us to hear, Paul? What do you want to hear? This is what I want to hear. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. My friends, he champions unity time and time again. In all of his letters, he exhorts them and talks to them at some point about standing together, about striving side by side, about eagerly maintaining the unity of their given church. And the reasons for that, I think, are obvious, aren't they? If you've been a Christian longer than about three months, you will know the effect of unity and you will know the effect of disunity. When there is unity in a local church, when a church is striving forward as one, when there is unity in the body of Christ, there is great blessing as a fruit. There is. When a church is really caring for one another and encouraging one another and rejoicing together and being devoted together and carrying one another's burdens... When that is taking place, it not only builds up the church from within, but unbelievers get to look on and see something quite different to what they see in the world. It is a great testimony. In Ephesians chapter 3, then, we learn that the very angels look on in the heavenly realms, and they see the manifold wisdom of God being displayed as the church actually unites, and they turn around and give all the more glory to the Lord. Unity is an incredible thing. Unity in a church is prized, it is wanted, but disunity obviously is horrendous. While unity brings great blessing, disunity in the body of Christ brings great destruction, does it not? And if you've ever experienced that in a local church, it's a sad thing. Bitterness, anger, divisions form. People champion secondary or even third issues. People don't want to resolve it. And disunity is sown. It's not effective then as a testimony to the world. They look and I think, oh, you're just like me. In fact, we stop even inviting our friends because we wouldn't want our friends to interact with something that's so disunity. And the angels in the heavenly realm surely can't look on in that moment and turn around and go, wow. They must look on with grief as to what's happening. Why are people that are meant to be united in the gospel just falling out and dividing up? You know, Paul champions unity, and as you realize why, you can't help but want it, can you? By God's grace, as a local church, I think we do have it. That's partly because we're three and a half years old. We haven't been around long enough yet to have real disunity. You know, we are standing and walking in unity, and I thank God for that. And yet, as I was reflecting on this this week, I was also reflecting on this sad reality. If we fumble the gospel as a local church... Disunity will never be far from our door. It never will. And I know it because in part I've experienced it, but in another part I see it in the letter of 1 Corinthians. I see it in what took place in the Corinthian church. See, the Corinthian church fumbled the gospel. 
They start to lose sight of Christ and him crucified. Paul had only been gone 18 months, but it appears that it all started to fall apart. The seams started to come out because they forgot the gospel. And as a result, one of the main factors is that divisions were beginning to form. And so some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus. They tried to play that as a joker card. But Paul realizes, no, you're just dividing up around bad things and you shouldn't be doing this. Later on down the track, he's talking to them about how they're dividing up over lawsuits. And later on down the track in the book, he even starts to talk to them about, you're even dividing up over what we should eat and drink. The Corinthians had lost track of the centrality of the gospel. And as a result, they were beginning to divide up over secondary issues, freedom issues. And disunity then became their theme. My friends, that's grieving, but the truth is I think that can so easily happen to us too, can it not? And if we are, don't think it's, we can, then I submit to you we are totally naive. Because when we fumble the gospel, secondary issues start to become important and too important. So is it right or wrong to homeschool? Right or wrong? Well, the Bible doesn't say. The Bible calls us to train our children in the way they should go. And some people then determine, you know what, I want to homeschool my kids then for the glory of the Lord. Other people say, well, I'm going to put them into public school for the glory of the Lord. And other people say, I'm going to put them in Christian school for the glory of the Lord. And the Bible says, you can do any of the above. Because you're not commanded to have your children at home. And homeschooling then is fine. But when it's raised up above the gospel, disunity will begin to become at our door. Because if we homeschool, then we'll believe we're right. And if we Christian school, we'll believe we're right. And if we do public school, we'll believe we're right. And we'll start to divide up then dependent on our homeschooling. Immunizations and healthcare. Issues that that moms and dads hold very dearly. Is it right or wrong to immunize our kids? Biblically defined. Well, I've looked through my concordance and I'm struggling to find it. It's a freedom matter. You're free to do what you want. We're called to care for our kids. We're called to protect our kids for the glory of the Lord. But what people determine then to do in that is entirely up to you. Modesty issues and clothing issues, alcohol issues, media usage, what films we can watch, what films we can't watch. My friends, I'm not saying we shouldn't delve into these issues. We should. But here's what I'm saying. These issues should never become the main thing. These things should never become the main thing that we unite around because that is exactly what happened to the Corinthians. They start to divide up. And so the very issue of eating and drinking, the background to that is there are idol worship going on in Ephesus, uh, sorry, in Corinth. They're all starting to worship different idols and the church, well, they're not worshiping the idols. They're happy to worship Jesus Christ. But the meat that gets sold after they worship these idols is quite cheap. And so some of the Christians decide, I think I'm going to buy that meat because it's like really cheap. And I don't even believe in idols, so we're obviously free to do it. And people are freaking out because some Christians are saying, I think that's fine. I mean, idols don't even exist or whatever. I'll just enjoy the meat. And other people are saying, that's horrendous. Oh, my gosh, you're eating meat that's been offered to an idol. And divisions start to form. And so they write to Paul and they're like, listen, what should we do? Can we eat this? Can we not? And I love his answer. I love his pastoral answer. 1 Corinthians 10.31, he basically says, you know what? I don't mind what you do. You're free to do what you like. 
But here's what I do want you to do. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. Having been saved by his grace, seek to worship him. So if you want to eat it, then you eat it for the glory of the Lord. If you don't want to eat it, then you don't eat for the glory of the Lord. But the answer to disunity is never uniformity. It is never uniformity. We must never, as a local church, make stands on issues that the Bible doesn't make a stand on. As if, well, this is what we do. My friends, when you come to me with issues of homeschool or alcohol or media usage or clothing, whatever it be, here's going to be my answer. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. We don't have a sovereign grace standard on this. The answer to these questions of disunity is never uniformity. The answer to disunity is unity in the gospel. It's standing on Christ and him crucified. And that's why Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians right up front in chapter 1 verse 10, Having communicated them about the gospel, he says, I appeal to you then, brothers. Right up front, dealing with their disunity, he wants them to realize, you are united. You are united in the death of Jesus Christ and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why you're brought together. You stand together in Christ and him crucified. You stand together in the gospel. And so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, but don't unite around those secondary and freedom issues. Unite around Calvary. That's what you stand together on. My friends, it is so important then, is it not, that we understand that it's important to keep first things first. Because when we don't keep the gospel central and we fumble it, secondary issues start to become very, very important. And divisions come and disunity comes. So I want to encourage you, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. Think about the Jew, think about the Greek, think about the people around you, the way we communicate our different preference issues. That's important, that pleases the Lord. But ultimately what we unite around is the gospel. We stand together on the gospel. Because we're family in Christ. That's the first reason then why we must keep the gospel central. But it's not the only reason. Number two, the gospel motivates. Not only brings unity, it also motivates us. I mean, we are called to live for the glory of the Lord, aren't we? It's a command on all of our lives. And we read it, you know, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. And you think, that sounds amazing. And then we get to Monday morning and work starts and we think, you know, that must just be for like apostles and pastors and people like that. That's what they do. But Paul's actually just talking to a church at that point. He's saying, you, if you're a Christian and you love Jesus Christ, then part of you becoming a Christian was that you took Jesus Christ as your king. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for his glory. Live passionately for him. You're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that the Jesus has commanded us. That's a call on all of our lives to, to brandish the gospel and apply it and proclaim it to everybody around. We're called to do that. And, and I think the truth is, at heart, when we pause and stop and pull away long enough, we realize that, don't we? And we want that. We think, yes. We go on church retreat and by the Sunday night we come home and we think, I'm in. I just want to serve Jesus. It's all I want to do in my life. And yet the truth is we are living in a city, which I've now had the privilege of living in for three and a half years, that I think is filled with temptations and distractions that seek to pull us away daily 
from living for the glory of the Lord. There are daily distractions and temptations that want to stop you from in any way radically living for Jesus Christ. They just want it to be boxed in your life. So you're a Christian, and yeah, that's nice. But you've got to live. There are many temptations and distractions, I think. The temptation of busyness, I'd probably put right up there at the top of the list. This is one of the busiest cities I've ever come on holiday in, let alone lived in, in my entire life. People's commutes, people's speed, people's friendships that they like to keep up. I mean, I thought Facebook wasn't real, but people in Sydney actually try and live like Facebook. I know a thousand friends, so I book them in and I've seen them once every three years. And I don't really know anybody and I feel lonely, but I'm going for it anyway. You know, we just live at this busy, fast pace. And I quite like it. I'm a fast-paced type of guy. I, I enjoy it. But one of the challenges of busyness is that I think we can all too easily get distracted away from the main thing. We can all too easily move off the gospel and move off what it is to live for the glory of the Lord. And when we move off that, I think there is a second temptation that faces us. It is the temptation of immortality. Not that we actually think we're immortal. No one in this room would actually say, oh, of course I'm immortal. And yet I think too often we live as if we are, don't we? We live as if, well, I'll get onto that when I'm older. You know, this year's a really busy year and I'm just going through a busy season, which I've been in actually for the last 30 years of my life, but a busy season. And when the season's finished, I'll really start living for the Lord. You know what? That's the temptation to think that we're immortal, that we've just got all the time in the world. We can get onto that. The psalmist in 103 it says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. We live in a city that just says, jump on in, it'll be all right. We'll just keep going. It's fun. And the psalmist pulls us to one side and says, do you realize you're going to die? That this is it? Do you get one shot? And Jesus Christ has died for you and you've bowed your knees and committed yourself to living for him. And in busyness, you've got distracted as if, well, you'll get onto that when you're older. Or when the season comes to an end. And you know what? The other temptation that I think we face then that marries to that is the temptation to start to think of this world as home. As if this is it. And I would say for me, I have faced this temptation in this city already many, many times. Because it's a great city. And it's a beautiful city. And people have beautiful homes. And they're beautiful people. And beautiful cars. And my heart says, I want that. As if this is home. As if this is all it is. And so in the Bible we read, listen, church, you are aliens and strangers in this place. Heaven is your home. But Sydney screams, looks pretty good to me. Do you feel those temptations? To think we can live forever. We want to live for Jesus, but then we get distracted and we think we're immortal and this is really home. And then, well, I suppose we just get old and realize we missed it. What did I do? What did I really do? Where did I get so distracted? My friends, the remedy to those problems and temptations I submit to you is the gospel. 
It is coming face to face with Christ and him crucified. When you live around Calvary, when you stand by the cross and you hear Jesus communicating to you, when you live near Calvary and you hear him declare, it is finished. It's done. When you stand around Calvary and you realize Jesus died for my sins and one day he will return for me and I will stand and give an account before him for my life and I want to hear, well done. When you live around Calvary that way, Sydney doesn't dazzle quite as much. Immortality becomes a nonsense because you realize I haven't got long left. And distraction, you start to realize I'm doing certain things in my life that aren't even important. I've got pulled into a world that I don't want to get pulled into and I want to live for Christ. When we fumble the gospel, we will always get distracted. But when we brandish the gospel, it is then that we will be able to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That wasn't a catchphrase. He was just so mesmerized with the gospel, so mesmerized with what Jesus had done for him, so mesmerized that his life was not immortal. And he just wanted to live for him. So to live, well, to live, it's all about you. And to die, well, that's the gain because then I'll be with you. And I just want to be with you. The gospel protects us. The gospel helps us avoid those temptations. And therein lies then the second reason as to why we must keep the gospel central. A.W. Tozer said this way, He says, the church is constantly being tempted to accept this world as home. But if she is wise, she will consider that she stands in the valley between the mountain peaks of eternity past and eternity to come. For the past is gone forever, and the present is passing as swift as the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz. Even if the earth should continue a million years, listen, not one of us could stay to enjoy it. And so we would do well to think of the long tomorrow. Friends, he's right. Sovereign Grace, we would do well to think of the long tomorrow. And the way we get to think of the long tomorrow is by being fueled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's being staggered with Christ and him crucified, realizing what Jesus has done for us. And then the opportunity we have to live for him. That's what it is to live for the long tomorrow. And therein lies then the second reason why I submit to you. Paul is exhorting Timothy so passionately to keep the main thing the main thing. Because it not only unites, it motivates. That's not all it does. Number three, the gospel also guards. It guards us. Now one of the striking things about this letter for me is that Paul... Paul doesn't assume that Timothy has an appropriate understanding and appreciation and grasp on the gospel that is sufficient. He doesn't. And that should astound us. See, Timothy has known scriptures, as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he has known the scriptures from infancy. Timothy has been well brought up and well trained by his mother Eunice and his grandma Lois. And Timothy, when he got older, has been trained by none other than the Apostle Paul himself. 
Timothy has been the right-hand man to Paul. He has been shadowing Paul for years. He has been told the gospel time and time and time again. The glories of Calvary, the glories of the way the gospel breaks in, the glories of what Jesus Christ has done for him. Time and time again, Paul exhorts Timothy in the gospel. And in verses 9 and 10 then, Paul unashamedly reminds Timothy of the gospel again. That surprises me, considering how many times he's heard it. But that's what he does. Look at verse 9. In fact, read from verse 8. He says, Therefore I do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, Timothy, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Timothy, I know you've heard the gospel many, many times from your mum and your grandma. I know you've heard it many, many times from me. But Paul, but, but Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy, you're going to hear it again. I want to tell you again. Before I instruct you in anything else, Timothy, I want you to know it. Why? Because Timothy, if you forget you will face all sorts of temptations and tendencies. And folks, so do we. When we fumble the gospel, when we lose sight of the gospel, we face many tendencies and perils. Legalism, for example. The temptation to base our relationship with God on our own performance before God. That's what legalism is. It is that temptation to smuggle in works to something that is a work of grace. It is the temptation to literally self-atone, to base our relationship with God and our acceptance before God, not on what Jesus has done, but what we have done. Do you ever feel that temptation? If you ever have a good day and a bad day scenario, you're already walking in legalism. So you have a good day, you read your Bible, it's gone well, got up great, had a quiet time, prayed, read my Bible, got to work and even told somebody about Jesus. Oh, he must love me so much, I feel so accepted by the, by the Savior. I love him and I know he loves me. Next day, the alarm didn't go off. Missed your prayer, missed your Bible reading. You drove to work, but on the way to work, you had a, a small pring in the car, and as a result, you swore. And when you went to work, somebody told you about Jesus, somebody told you about their day, and you were not interested in their day. You had an opportunity to share the gospel with them, but you couldn't be bothered because you're thinking about the car. And you go home thinking that God must be totally disgusted with you and disappointed with you, and most likely not even accepting you. That's legalism. Because you think that your works add to the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. And it is the finished work of Jesus Christ plus your works that means acceptance before God. That is heresy. Your acceptance before the Lord. God sings over you, not because of your works or lack of works. God sings over you and accepts you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. Do you see that? When you keep the gospel central, that's what you live with. You're amazed by grace because you realize it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. But when we fumble the gospel, we start to think it's about me. 
It's about what I do. It's never about what we do. Legalism is such a peril and a temptation when we fumble the gospel. Subjectivism is another temptation I think we all face too when we fumble the gospel. The temptation to base our view of God on our changing feelings and emotions. See, there are not too many people amongst us that flatline in our feelings and emotions, are there? I mean, some more than others. But you know, the difference is some people go up and down in their feelings. Some people just go a little bit up and down. But we all go up and down in our feelings and emotions, isn't it? And life is a big roller coaster, isn't it? Sometimes we undergo the test of prosperity and we're just loving it. God seems to be blessing me so much. And then other times, it's as if the roller coaster is going uphill, clunking very slowly. And you're undergoing the test of adversity. You know, Sinclair Ferguson says one of the greatest problems of mankind is that we can all too easily think with our feelings. That is absolutely right. And so we go through the roller coaster of life, sometimes the test of prosperity, sometimes the test of adversity. And when it's going well for us, we assume, because we think with our feelings, God must really love me. He's blessing me so much. Isn't he good? I must be so close to him. But then when we go through trials, because we think with our feelings, we assume God must be so disappointed with me. What did I do wrong? He must be punishing me or something. I used to feel like he was so close to me, but now I just feel like he's so far away. And so I still come on a Sunday and I'm still involved, but I'm kind of the black sheep of the family. I'm sure God must be disappointed with me. I'm sure I'm in the must-try-harder bracket of Christianity. My friends, that's subjectivism. It is thinking with our feelings when it comes to the issue of acceptance with the Lord. And yet the gospel, which is utterly outside of ourselves and utterly outside of our feelings and utterly objective, helps us to understand God is loving me and accepting me because of what Jesus Christ has done. And the test of adversity and the test of prosperity are parts of life. For God disciplines those he loves. So why is it whenever I feel disciplined, I assume God doesn't like me? It's always an act of his love. He's passionate about us. He loves us. And so we must, as a local church, ground ourselves, not in feelings, but in truth. And not in feelings of anything, but in the truth of the gospel. You want to know how much God loves you. uh, For at the right time, God sent forth his son for you. Can there be any doubt then as to how he feels about you? Because at the right time, he sent his son for you. Condemnation is the other peril. The peril and temptation to be more focused on our sin than on God's grace. You ever experienced that? The temptation to be very aware of all the things you've done wrong. And to feel that in some way God must be utterly disappointed with you all the time. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, talks about a comic strip called Kathy, and I think it is so helpful in illustrating this point. It's one of those cartoon strips, and in frame one, there's one of those thought bubbles coming out of Kathy, and she says, things I should have done at work, and things I should have said to Irvin. Scene two, things I promised myself that I'd never do again, that I did anyway. Ways I made myself miserable that I could have avoided. Scene three, 
Things I could have done for my family, my puppy, my friends, my co-workers, my neighbor, my finances, my home, my closet, my diet, and millions of people in need whom I have never met. It's going downhill for Kathy. Then she says this. For even when I'm not going anywhere, I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. That's what condemnation feels like. Even when I'm not going anywhere, it's like I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. And Satan tempts me to despair on these things. And so in a sense, I kind of know I'm forgiven, but wherever I go, I'm just aware of that thing I did wrong. and I find it hard to move on. God must be disappointed with me. Ongoingly disappointed, given the heinous sin that I have committed. You know what, my friends? When we lose sight of the gospel, condemnation lies right at the door. But when we grasp the gospel, and we love the gospel, and we surround ourselves in the gospel, and we realize Christ died for my sins... That's when we can align ourselves with Paul and realize there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The 300 pounds of luggage that we are carrying around with us has already gone, but Satan is miraging around us to help us see as if it's still there. But it's not. Jesus Christ has paid for that sin. It is done. It has been removed from us. It has been passed as far as the east is to the west. But when we lose sight of the gospel and we forget that, it seems to be around us again, doesn't it? And so Paul writes Timothy and he reminds him, Timothy, don't forget the gospel. He says it again in chapter 2, verse 8. You know, I mean, it sounds patronizing, but he's just, remember Jesus, Timothy. He knows that he is going to be tempted to forget just like everybody else. And he exhorts him then, Timothy, remember Jesus. And Timothy, follow the, follow the gospel. Timothy, grasp the gospel. Timothy, guard the gospel. Sovereign Grace, if Timothy needed that, given his background, then how much more do we, don't you think? If Timothy, having been trained in the gospel all of his life, needed to be reminded by Paul in this moment to grasp the gospel and not move on from the gospel, then how much more do you and I need that? The gospel unites. The gospel motivates. The gospel guards. And finally and briefly, the gospel saves. Paul knew it only too well. He was a murderer of Christians. He hated Christians. Just a few weeks ago when we were looking at Acts and we saw Stephen being martyred, there was a man standing to the side who was laughing and holding people's coats so they could throw the stones. That was Paul. But he impacted Jesus Christ. He met Jesus Christ. He was impacted with the glorious gospel. And so with that in mind, he says this to the Romans in chapter 1 verse 16. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I want to say it loud. I don't want to say it passionately. I'm not backing off the gospel because it is the power of God, the dunamis of God, the Greek word word is there. It's translated power, but dunamis is also the root word where we get dynamite. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the dynamite of God. 
It's how people get saved. Sovereign Grace, listen. You will never nice someone into the kingdom of God. Do you realize that? Do you get that? It doesn't matter how nice to people you are at playgroup. Someone is not going to turn around and go, you are so nice. I want to bow the knee to Jesus. And yet sometimes we think that's what's going to happen, isn't it? We're never going to be able to nice anybody into the kingdom of God because I submit to you, and I do love you, and I do like you, but I've met nicer people in the world. I mean, honestly, there are a lot of nice people out there that do not love Jesus Christ. We're never going to nice people in. And we're never going to guilt people in or argue someone into heaven. You always meet some people like that, don't you? They want to go toe-to-toe with you on whether creation really happened quite like that. And I just think... I don't care, really. I'm really not bothered because even when we establish where we stand on creation, there will be another issue and then another issue and then another issue. We will never argue somebody into the kingdom of God. They'll never go, oh, I understand it now in my mind. I'm in. Never. You will never nice someone in. You will never guilt someone in. You will never argue someone in. But you can preach someone in. When we brandish the gospel of Jesus Christ and we proclaim Christ and him crucified, even people like Paul, who are murders of Christians, can in a moment become a Christian. It's what Pete, Pete Greasy called the sticky bombs, the sticky bombs of the gospel. And we run up to people and we slap it on their back and we slap it on their heart and we can't make it go off, but I'm jolly well going to stick it on them. And if that means they spend their life with 150 sticky bombs, well, it's going to be one almighty explosion when it goes off then. But I'm going to jolly well stick them on. We can't nice them in. We can't argue them in. But we can share the gospel with them. Do you realize that's what evangelism actually is? Evangelism is not putting on events. Evangelism isn't being being nice to people or befriending people. Evangelism is sharing the gospel with somebody. It's being a good news messenger. And we must do that because it's the gospel alone that saves. And the reality is there are people who live next door to you, people who go to school with you, people who go to work with you, who are on the Titanic going full steam towards hell. And they don't care. And they're a hard audience to preach to. Because the Bible says they're dead in their transgressions and sins. Doesn't matter how nice you are to dead people. Doesn't make them come alive. Doesn't matter how much argument you give the dead people. Doesn't make them alive. But when you share the gospel with them, there is hope. When you share the gospel with them in urgency and grace, there is hope that in a moment that bomb can go off and they can come alive. And so Paul writes Timothy. His life is coming to an end. He's about to become a martyr for the gospel. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. And Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Timothy, follow the gospel, grasp the gospel and guard the gospel and treasure the gospel and don't fumble the gospel. Keep the gospel central in your life and then in your pastoral ministry, teach others to keep the gospel central. 
Why? Well, we learn it from his other letters. Because the gospel unites. It's the thing that any local church should indeed gather around as the most important thing that makes us brothers and sisters. Secondary issues, we can be diverse on them. I encourage diversity. I love diversity. But we unite around the gospel. We stand on that. The gospel motivates. The gospel guards. And the gospel saves. And so, our mission at Sovereign Grace Church is to build together a community of believers who are passionate about knowing, applying, and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I trust now you are encouraged and refreshed and refocused as to why. I want us to be theologically informed. I want us to be theologically motivated. And I trust now you can see afresh. Is the gospel not amazing? It unites, guards, saves, and it motivates. So would it always be the main thing in this local church? Charles Hunt Spurgeon once said of his flock, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he said, I fear that you will get bored with my preaching. They never did, because he was the prince of preachers. But he said it because he was basically saying to them, you know what, each and every week all you're really going to hear from me is the gospel. I've got one nail and every week I'm going to hammer it and I'm going to hammer it and I'm going to hammer it because I never want us to move off the gospel. My friends, I ain't no Spurgeon, but I do share his passion. The gospel is powerful. And so while I have the joy of being your senior pastor... And if I die being your senior pastor, hopefully not like shortly, but in years to come, I just want us to have one nail. One nail. And would we all hammer it? And would we all ring it? And would we all keep hammering it? Because it will unite us. It will motivate us. It will guard us. And it will give us a message that can see anyone come to know him. So let's keep it central. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I do thank you for your gospel. And I do thank you that in your kindness, you've given us the letter of 2 Timothy. You breathe these words through Paul to Timothy so that we could learn from them. So that we could understand a model of ministry through them. Oh, Lord, would you, would you help us? Well, in 2014 and 2015 and beyond, would you help us not to move off the main thing? Lord, would you help us to guard the good deposit and follow the pattern of Paul's wise words? Would you help us to stand on the gospel? And would the fruits then of this glorious gospel be the fruits that we see in this local church? Lord, please do these things. And would we growingly then, as a result, fall more and more in love with you and more amazed by you and more guarded by you and more motivated by you so that we want to live more for you. Help us do things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. Please come tonight. This will in some ways be part two, practical application of what we're talking about today. And there are many opportunities facing us, this church, and challenges. So please come. I'll see you tonight.
sweet the sound.